heads of Stephen Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Dara Crochet. I'm very happy to be joined by a very special guest today, Lisa McEnfrave. Am I pronouncing that right? That's it. You got Excellent. it perfectly. <laughs> See? When you're doing it, this thing, this little, this long pronunciation isn't an issue anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> my name gets me. everybody, so don't worry. It's a it's a funny um, translation. Um, I think uh, some of my family would argue that it's Nikon Vrahunig. I think that's the correct um, the correct mm-hmm. form of the name. But I guess a lot of us got our Irish language names from our primary school teachers who translated them whatever way they saw fit. But I love it now because I don't know anyone else in the world called Lisa Nikon Vrahunig. So it's like, you know, for Radio Delifa, for whatever else, it's my stage name. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, I know there's one other dark out there who spells his surname the same way I do. And I don't know how, but... <laughs> he's there, though. <laughs> he is indeed, and I wish him well. <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, he's the one that's jealous of you, Dar. He got married before I did, and I had an, an aunt very cross, the idea that, that, that dark O'Shea had gotten married and she hadn't been invited. Oh. <laughs> but it's all... like, don't worry, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> all good now. One of the reasons I've invited Lisa in today is... We're coming to the end of 2019 and it's time to maybe to take stock and look at a very important decade in Irish history, particularly in this respect of um, Lisa's involvement with the European movement and also a number of other campaigns. At the start of this decade of 2010, Irish opinion of the European Union and the European project was maybe probably at its lowest point around the time of the IMF bailout. But now... This year, as we are exiting the decade, there's an approval rate of the European Union in Ireland and its involvement in it at around 93%. Astonishing numbers. If an election came in that high, you just wonder if it was rigged. But we're going to talk a little about that today. Ireland's European journey, but also um, some of the other events of the 2010s and how the Irish language has found its way into some of those things. Lisa, Europe, what's the point? <laughs> Such a good question, eh? And that's that's the question um, in European Movement Ireland, um, mm. the NGO that I work for, that we we try and answer and we try and like get out there and talk to people in the public, talk to businesses, talk to people at all different levels of Irish society about what is the point, you know what I mean? And um, I mean, you know, as an individual, I look back and I think of like, you know, where we were before. I mean, I wasn't born, but where we were before we joined the EU. And I look at how Ireland has transformed. And like that, that is, as you mentioned, the referenda and things like that. There's been so many different factors in there. But the EU was a massive driving force for a lot of things in Ireland, um, for our economy, um, for sort of things like when you look at even women in the home and women in the Mm -hmm. workplace, things like that, that like it's just, in my opinion, so great for us to be part of this huge union of countries, um, especially when you look at the a time like we're in now and, and what's happening in the US and what's happening around the world for a small country like us to be part of this huge strong union of countries and such a varied union you know such a varied union of cultures of of opinions of, of societies um, but it's just for me it's just so important that like I consider myself an Irish citizen but also a, a European citizen and I and I often hear this from people for example who go on Erasmus or who go interrailing and who, who avail of these benefits of being part of the EU um, and sure you know I accept they're not for everybody that not everybody can achieve that based, based on their sort of you know economic background and things like that but but that even that is trying to open up with things like Erasmus Plus now and, and when I talk to those people they really give this sense of 
an understanding of European identity and that we're Europeans. And sure, each of us are, you know, totally individual member states with our own cultures, like the way the Irish language is an official language of the EU, which I'm sure we'll chat about more, (laughs) Derek. But things like that, that like we really, we are an independent state, but we're also part of this wonderful union that I feel much more supported in as an Irish citizen. I feel more, you know, that that we are stronger. And, and you know, facing into Brexit, it really is um, so important to me that 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 we are, and to us in European Movement Ireland, that we are part of this union and that, we, you know, I guess we'll have to reframe um, and we're beginning to reframe that relationship with the EU, with our closest neighbours, um, potentially leaving the European Union. So, so you mentioned a poll there, which is one that we do every year. And like, there's a range of different polls that lots of different organisations do each year but we do an independent uh, research poll that we send out to a company each year to do um, a a survey of Irish attitudes to the EU and the 93% you referred to um, the question that we asked that we ask every year because it's really important to keep monitoring that and things change so much and I'm sure it will change so much next year too Mm -hmm. Um, but the first and the primary question we ask is should Ireland remember remain a member of the EU and not 93% this year said yes to that. Um, Only 2% said don't know and 5% said they disagreed that they didn't want us to be part of the EU. Um, And I guess they didn't see the benefits of of our membership of the EU. So it's really strong. I mean, sure, people have said to me, you know, these are like North Korea figures, blah, blah, blah. Like it's Mm. huge. It really is huge. And, And like, sure, with any of these polls, you have to give a bit of leeway. But any of these polls that have been conducted, I've seen at least seven this year and each of them ranged from sort of 87 to 93 percent. Like when you're going and asking people the simple question, should we remain a member of the EU? This is the answer that we're getting across the board. This is not to say that the EU is perfect. This is not to say that there are not things that we criticise, mm. that we look for, that we that we demand better of the EU and of, 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 of ourselves as members of the EU. Sometimes people say over in Brussels and, you know, yeah. that they're over there making decisions. But don't forget, uh, we've just elected a number of MEPs from Ireland to go and sit on in the European Parliament. And even one of our MEPs, Mairead McGuinness, is vice president over there. You, you know, like it's we have have such a voice over there and people forget that sometimes and and we have that attitude of over in Europe but we're in Europe we may not be geographically attached to the continent but we are such a, a, a we are an important part of Europe for such a small country it is a thing that the we're using Brussels as a catch-all term for the European Court of Justice the European Commission and the European Parliament has been one of the really weak points of stuff the dialogue about Europe and particularly in the United Kingdom uh, the idea that Brussels and we think well actually mm. the the European Commission that's made up of ministers and then the European Parliament that's made up of direct, directly elected MEPs and the Court of Justice the big thing you, you hear all these stories about the sound volumes of vacuum cleaners or how long it takes to get a working definition <laughs> of chocolate I think the idea was that it, it took over 15 years the European Court of Justice to get an agreed definition of chocolate, uh, <laughs> what chocolate was and wasn't for. But this is down to that reasons. It wasn't a case that they were sitting around scratching their heads. Mm. It was a case that the there was a lawsuit that went that far. Yeah. And it was in deliberations for a while. And then someone said, well, if the vat on chocolate is this, what if I get a piece of bread which the vat is zero on and cover it in chocolate? What are you going to mm. do then? 
Like, Derek, it's yeah. the media and how we receive the message about Europe is mm. so important. And and I really advise people mm. to like vary where they get their news yes. about Europe and about the EU and about the institutions because these are important institutions that are making decisions on our behalf. Like I was saying to friends at the time of the European Parliament uh, election campaign, like we were stuck in heavily campaigning like, like I was in the 2015 and 18 referendums, you know, working until... God only knows whatever every night we were working really hard on it but I was saying to friends on a personal level like you're voting in you know for example marriage equality but yeah. then if you don't vote in the European Parliament elections you know you we need to send good representatives out to Europe to stand alongside um, the potentially the influx of, of others coming in from other countries and, mm. and the rise of the right the rise of the conservative uh, in other countries in Europe they are then voting on laws that affect our country. Like we have to take ownership of that in my opinion and it can be hard because it the message does get blurred in the media and and you know one day I sat down on a train and I saw a copy of the UK Daily Mail the hard copy yeah. and I wouldn't usually read the Daily Mail online but I read that front to back and after reading that I just thought if I had read nothing else I would absolutely see why someone would vote for something like Brexit yeah. because the way it was framed you know, it scared me how different, like we all, we need a variety of opinions. We need a discussion. And we in European movement say that we are a critical friend of Europe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we do criticise and we do analyse. And we had IREXIT uh, representatives speaking at our events. You know what yeah. I mean? We open up the conversation. But I worry when something is so, so far to one side and if people are only getting their news from one source, it can be worrying. So sure, there are issues and, and, and Europe, as you, as we call it, and, and Brussels need to, you know, continue to improve how they communicate their message. NGOs and groups like ourselves, I mean, we're like nine people in Dublin. Mm. We're a small um, organisation, but we try to reach as far as we can in getting the message out there and in yeah. telling people like what is fake news and what is real and what is the Europe doing and what was the story behind that chocolate story you, you yeah. know and and it's really important to I just think you know as as a citizen in any election in any referendum I want to be getting the facts you know and in mm-hmm. a world of fake news I just I always say to people just vary where you get your information from and and really maybe go to the source of, of what's happening like you know you can get such a, a variety of information from the institutions directly themselves and sort of transcripts of meetings and and videos and things like that where you can see exactly what was going on rather than reading something that, you know, frames something in a certain way, which I mean, it happens throughout the media and I work in the media with Radio and Alifa. I I know it happens and that's just the nature of it. But with something as crucial as this at a time like this, when we have to be, I think we have to be so strong as part of the European Union when things are happening, when Brexit is happening, when when we have a president like we do in the US. It, it's just important that we are a strong union and that we know exactly what we're voting for, that we know exactly who we're voting for and that they're representing the values that we want portrayed and, and, and put forward on a European stage and, and, and on an international stage in that sense. And this is the thing, because I know um, one of the one of the issues with European elections in Ireland has been that they have been kind of midterm uh, midterm reports on the government as opposed to on how the government's doing as opposed to actually decisions about who the right people to send to the European Parliament to do your thing has been. Whereas at this this year, I think 
we spoke about the a knowledge gap before between um, how little people in the United Kingdom might know about uh, Ireland and details of Ireland, such as mm. the board. I'm not going to get too much into that, but mm. this year there were seven general elections in European member states at the same time as, as the European Parliament. And I was thinking, like, we hear nothing about the news in other countries unless it's a it's included in a comment and this works really well somewhere else. Why don't we do this? Like the nightmare in Amsterdam. The, the fact that the Amsterdam has a mayor for the night who's separate to the mayor for the daytime. And sometimes they, these things are never actually discussed in any detail. And everything's going, something's going wrong in Dublin. Oh, Paris does this. They're great. And as opposed to actually coverage of what elections are like in other countries, we don't actually know much about what's going on in the Netherlands or in Denmark or in places like that. We get very little coverage of that, which is a real shame. Mm, and I mean, I'm communications and campaigns manager of European Movement Ireland. And, and sure, we're a small NGO and sure, you mm. know, there are bigger organisations putting things yeah. out and there are mm. academics who are specialist in, in European studies. But I do, you know, I, it, it can be difficult sometimes for us to get onto the big, you know, talk shows and things mm-hmm. like that where that's what we're trying to do we're trying yeah. to put out that information where not all of the media will cover those kind of things and sure like the international sections of our newspapers now are just constantly Brexit or the US mm-hmm. and like you say a lot of people didn't know that all those general elections happened and and I'm not you know tooting mm-hmm. our horn but we put out little briefings on each of those elections as they happen because I mean that's our job we are here to communicate about Europe and it's not just about the institutions it's about our fellow member states it's about the cultures and things like that. Like we run a fabulous programme with primary school kids um, where we, and, and this is on, on behalf of the Department of Foreign Affairs, um, where we send out uh, sort of information packages to schools. It's called the Blue Star Programme, if anyone is a teacher and wants to get involved. But we send out all of this information about, you know, different European countries' cultures and languages and uh, Europe Day that's celebrated in May and um, the institutions and all of that. We send that out to schools and teachers kind of run with themselves and teach it whatever way they wish. They could just focus on culture. They could just focus on the institutions. And this is our way of, of educating kids from an early age about, like you say, I suppose, Dark, a kind of a that we're linked up in some way. Like, sure, there's a big difference from rural Connemara to, you know, like Paris. Yeah. But we are still part of this union that is linked. We're not the same. We're not the United States of America, but we are a union and we are linked in so many ways through laws, regulations, through things like Erasmus, you know, and, and, and like we really, I think it's important that kids from a young age get what's going on there. And sure, they can take whatever view then that that they want about Europe, about the European Union, about us being a member state. But I think it's important that they see the values. And I think that was something that happened after the Brexit referendum, that a lot of people said, wait a minute, what does Europe actually do for us? Yeah. What is the value of our membership? Like there was that famous thing about the Google search of, of what does this mean the day after the referendum, which makes yeah. me so sad as a communications manager, as a journalist, I think it's so important that we're informed and then that we all make our own decisions. At the time of the referendums, it was important that we put out information. And sure, I was on one side or the other, but it's important that people just heard the news and the facts and then made their own decisions. And I think that goes for anything, you know. Mm. That's definitely the case. And and just to mention, the European Movement website is really fantastic for getting people good, clear information like that. That's just the facts section. (laughs) It's lovely and clear. I'd recommend you all have a gawk at it. 
going to talk a little bit about um, obviously one of the things that you're, that the European Union has done quite well has been supporting minority language rights. Yeah, I mean, you know, as we mentioned earlier, like Ireland, Irish, of course, has been an official language of the EU now for some time. And um, that obviously means that all of our documentation is translated to Irish. I know I have lots of friends who did Irish in university that now have fabulous job opportunities in um, Brussels and Strasbourg and the like and have been there for years. And like one of my friends runs the European Parliament Gaelga Twitter account. Um, so it's really fabulous um, to, to just look at our ourselves for one moment it's really fabulous I think for the Irish language that we have this just these opportunities that are being created um, for the language and that our language is respected on this global stage. Like just to to name one of the MEPs over the year, Sean Kelly is one of the main Irish speakers among the MEPs this year. And so he'll do a lot of his business through Irish in hmm. the parliament and that's translated. So it's like you have all of these MEPs from all over, over 700 MEPs from all over the world listening to our language. Like that's incredible. You know, and it, I really think for a minority language, it's fabulous. And there are countless job opportunities constantly uh, for Irish speakers in Europe, as we call it, um, but also in Ireland with the with the mm. institutions. And I just think it, it's wonderful and it really puts our language on a global stage. And it, it, I think it gives credibility to younger people who, you know, I, I remember every house party I was at, every person I met in university that that asked me what I did at university and I said I did Irish and I was doing Irish as an art subject. So, you mm. know, like, what the hell are you going to do with that when you mm-hmm. leave school? And Derek, like, for, oh, I don't want to think about the number, like 14, <laughs> like, no, no, 10 years that I'm out of uh, university. Every single job opportunity I have had in some way was linked to the Irish language. And whether it was that I got a job because of Irish, which led me on to another job, I can trace right back and every job, every job I have had, I've used the language. So even if it wasn't, most of my jobs weren't with Irish language organisations, but I've brought an element of Irish to it. So it's always an advantage. It always ma- gives you that extra kind of X factor. And and that's why I was so delighted to see this year that the CAO, um, when the CAO figures came out, that more, um, that there was an increase of uh, students applying to do Irish at third level. And I just think that's fabulous because I see opportunities every day mm. of the week and I'm like, oh, like I'm telling my little sister and my cousins and stuff, like do Irish, even if you do it as a Broad Horizons extra module or something. If mm. you have Irish under your belt, um, and, and and that could be a degree level or just an extra subject or an evening class. If you have some Irish, it will be a benefit to you, and it just opens the door to so many opportunities. And then I suppose across Europe, it 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 really is wonderful for minority languages and the respect that they're given on a forum like uh, at the European Parliament meetings and things like that. It's just, I think it's really important as somebody who really values languages and loves languages, mm-hmm. and I'm sure lots of your listeners are the same. It's it's just so important that we're not all communicating in one or two languages. I'm sure people say, oh, we'll all be speaking X in the future, but I, I really don't believe that. I really think when you look at the increase of Gaelga and, and, and things like that, I think it's there is such value to being able to communicate in different languages. And yeah. anyone who speaks more than one language to whatever level will tell you that it, it's a different way of communicating. It's a different way of seeing the world, of understanding the world. And I just think if we can do anything and I think the European Union in fairness is doing a lot 
if we can do anything to support these minority languages and to keep them alive, then then why not? You know, it's wonderful and it makes us more diverse and it yeah. and it it makes us more understanding of other people's situations and things like that. You know what I mean? I think it does, and I think the fact that there's a this tradition of activism in in the Irish language as supported by Europe, this tradition of activism has trickled out into other areas, which has been particularly I was thinking about the the two major referenda of the past decade mm. have had an Irish language. Uh, part of their activism. Yeah, it was, you know, it was really, they were two huge, monumental, super special times of my life to be involved in the two um, referendum campaigns in 2015 and 2018, marriage equality. And obviously I was on the TAW, the yes side of both of them. And then, of course, the referendum on the Eighth Amendment uh, just last year. And I um, I knew I wanted to be involved, you know, and I was involved in my local area a little bit and I was involved on a national scale in whatever way I could, going to meetings, going to events. But then in 2015 in particular, and this was led by a friend of mine, Cherry Lachal Bukhala, um, and a couple of other great Irish speakers, I think what we saw, uh, Darach, was that, and, and heard, was that on the Irish language media, we couldn't, we, we weren't hearing good debates about uh, the referendum. And if you remember back to 2015, actually, even from the start, a lot of the debate, like, it was really, really strong on the yes side. And and there was little, there was little of, of a debate or an argument coming from the no side, to be very frank. And I think what we heard then on the Irish language media were that actually there were there appeared to be a lot more speakers on the no side that were strong. And we were like, this is not reflective of mm-hmm. Irish society. And we as Irish speakers, and particularly young Irish speakers, like everyone in that group was like 20s, 30s. Um, and, and we really, and some were still in college and things like that. And we just said, you know what, if no one else is going to do it, we have to do this. And, and the group that set it up were absolutely fabulous. I was young enough, I just kind of, joined on at the time Mm -hmm. but when I got involved I just thought this is absolutely fabulous and really got stuck into it and we were on Radio Naguiltukta we were on TG Cahar we were on all of the Irish language media you know sort of weekly throughout the busier times of the campaign and we were debating against people and we were doing interviews and we were giving insights and we were doing the exact same thing that was happening on the Irish language media of you know telling your story or telling your family story or whatever and um, it was just, it was just incredible. And then, of course, you know, we we built up the campaign that was Tall Coanunus or Yes Equality Oscailga, and we, it became more, you know, it grew sort of legs, and we we had events, and we we got lots of volunteers involved, and and there were the tall badges that the, the mm. Yes Equality group brought out, and of course, we really you know, took ownership of those and, and had our own sort of paraphernalia Oscailga and things like that. And and if you remember, the tall badges were probably more uh, popular amongst people yeah. than the yes badges. So it was really great. For me, on the on the flip side, it was like a great revival of the Irish language in a way too, to show it, that it was important. It was know? really significant. I thought that the fact that a badge with the word tall on it became is one of the icons of the 2010s in Ireland. Absolutely. My, I remember my dad, and it always sticks out to me, my dad was flying to Finland and he was on a plane. And you know when you feel like you're you're probably one of the only Irish people on the plane, it was yeah. it, it seemed like it was mainly Finnish people going home or people who lived there. And he said everyone on the plane was wearing a tall badge and nobody was wearing a yes badge. And it showed that people, again, this is the European thing, people from other countries are coming over and saying, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Ireland has a language that's not English and like mm-hmm. they're campaigning with this language. Like that's great. Um, so yeah, so and 
also just to mention that we transferred then the sort of ideas and the skills and the resources and the people from the 2015 referendum to the 2018 referendum and a, a sort of a new group set up and people like Ethan Ihulawan uh, sort of founded it. It was a group called Gael or Son Rawa. And this was, um, an, again, the exact same sort of thing, an Irish language group uh, to campaign for a yes vote through Irish. Mm. And this involved the same sort of things. We were knocking on doors and campaigning us, Gaelga. We were doing oh my goodness, so much media coverage. I was, I felt like I was doing, I was having a debate with somebody on the radio every single week of my life. Um, and because it was, it was that thing, Derek, mm. where it's difficult. It was so difficult for us. We only had a small number of speakers. Mm. It's difficult to find someone who is willing to campaign and give their time, who is a fluent Irish speaker and people want to be fluent if they're going to debate someone yes. like, I debated Ronan Mullen live in Trinity College. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and like that kind of thing, you want to feel fluent, you want to feel comfortable, you want to have the language. And then, you know, also someone who's willing to go on the radio or go on the telly. So it was really hard to find that. And a fabulous thing I saw happen, um, which again is, a, is, a, is an added benefit, an added bonus, was that again, people from our group in their early 20s, like were debating against the big guns, you know, of, of who were debating in English as well. Like mm-hmm. I was debating against Ronan Mullen and I'm, you know, I'm his junior by, by a mile. This is something I was doing on the side. This is something he has been trained to do, you know, yes. and, and it was really like we were given this platform to jump up and to take the lead. And it was because we had to, you know, we had to take ownership of this and we had to do it because nobody else was doing it. And, and, and the sort of um, those that were working on the campaign, not many of them actually had Irish or or could do the Irish language media coverage. So so they were kind of coming to us to say, oh, TG Cahar, we're in touch or whatever. And then sort of organically, the Irish language media came directly to us. And it was really incredible to see um, such young people sort of taking the reins and saying, well, you know, it's it's sort of ownership of our society and of, of, of being citizens of this country and what we believe in. It was saying, I am going to, do that debate because I have to because somebody mm. has to you know and and getting that challenge w- was fabulous I think for some of them and, and it'll, it's something that will stand to us you, you know? an opportunity they wouldn't have had with that Irish I think so yeah mm. yeah 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 absolutely I mean I, I wouldn't have been debating Ronan Mullen it would have been mm. you know the Alva Smiths and the people who were way up in the campaign and, and, and rightly so people who were on a level uh, with him or with the other people that were involved but um to get that challenge then, you know, like you rise to it and, and like it's not easy. It's not easy that, you know, someone like him is campaigning all day and, and I'm coming straight from my office job and straight in to do this. And I'm doing like six. I, I was doing six hours campaigning a day for about six months on top of my nine to five. So it was super intense and it was all voluntary, of course. And it was just, um, yeah, it was it was a challenge, but it was, I, they were two of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. And I think a lot of people would say that, that were involved yeah. in the campaigns. For our international listeners, I just want to point out that Ronan Mullen is a uh, champion debater and barrister who would have worked in various administrative roles with certain bishops and would be a prominent spokesperson on the um on the anti-choice sides and the uh, and the no side of the marriage equality referendum. As an interesting footnote, he was the president of the Galway Students' Union at the same time yeah. that Michael D. Higgins was the mayor of Galway. Yes, yes. I heard that actually during the campaign and it's an interesting one. But It just seems like the backdrop of a phenomenal musical. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, um, 
Don't you wonder sometimes Derek we say like, oh, that time I met Derek O'Shea doing that podcast and look what mm. he's doing now, you know? Well, I think we've, we've had so many interesting <laughs> people in the studio and I, I love the idea of people looking back in 10 years time and thinking that all these amazing people who are now leading roles in all these different fields were all linked somehow by a podcast at Irish. Mm, I would mm. hope so. I would hope so. It's such a varied, fabulous podcast. Like so many people I know talk about it from all different walks of life where when you mm-hmm. started, I remember thinking, and I'm good friends with Padder, um, who you, you work with and who I know from Radio Nalifa. And I remember thinking, oh, this will be, you know, our usual gang of the Irish speakers will be into this. But Mother mm. Folklore just reaches so far. And, and anyone I mentioned that I was coming on, anyone I mentioned it to, they would have no Irish or whatever everyone had heard of it or everyone had listened so it's yeah congratulations it's a great it's a great podcast thank you so much and you mentioned of course being a Radio Nalifa there and your show Radio Nalifa this kind of touches us back to the European Union and beyond and that you talk to Irish speakers around the world yeah, yeah. So this was, um, I did a Fulbright scholarship in 2012 where I was teaching Irish in Connecticut. And um, while I was there, I mean, when you're in the States, you don't just meet Americans, you meet people from all over the world. And while I was there, I just, I met so many Americans and Canadians and people from all over the world who had an interest in Irish or who spoke Irish. And I think the big thing that you learn when you go somewhere like that is how many people are fluent and how many people are this is a really important language to them and they're raising their kids with it. And it's not about, oh, my ancestors are Irish. Very often it's about, I don't know, they took an interest in Joyce or Yeats and they wanted something to complement it or they took an, they took a fascination to it through Irish music or or they just wanted to learn a nice minority language or whatever. And and there was such a variety that I was just like, this needs to be explored, you know, and I, and I wasn't seeing it happening on Irish language media. So I came back to Radio Liffa and I'd been with Radio Liffa for a few years before that. And so this was 2013 and I sat down with Werish, the boss, and I said, I'd love to do a show about Irish speakers around the world. And I'd love to like set myself the challenge to like, you know, that it's only international affairs that I try as much as I can to get people who are not in Ireland, who are not Irish, who are living abroad, but speak Irish. And he was like, yeah, yeah, go for it. And he was really encouraging. And I thought, you know, I'll give this a go um, and see how many I get and, and how many people, you know, and, and when do I run out? And Derek, that was exactly seven years ago. And every <laughs> week for seven years, bar the odd holiday here and there, every week for seven years, I have had two to three guests on that show from all around the world. So you're talking like I've done over 200 shows. Um, and so you're talking, you know, I don't know, it could be 200 guests because we've some regulars and things like that. But it, it's really incredible and it's really incredible how far it's spread. And, and I've really loved the show. It's called Fada is Farshing. And it's um, it's just been so insightful. And it, it it's everything from... You know, uh, somebody speaking about Brexit from London to somebody telling me their story of learning Irish in rural Virginia and like their family story, you know, so it really varies. That's lovely. Where's the furthest away? person who's Oh, that's a really good question. I could do one of those little heat maps. I'll ask uh, mm-hmm. my friend Teresa Lynn. She, she'd be good at that. Um, where is the furthest away? Goodness, I don't know. Australia, definitely. And Asia, there were people teaching Irish at master's level in Beijing and, you know, all sorts of places. But um, yeah, uh, The old know. Beijing canyon, just gorgeous. <laughs> Beijing wish it. <laughs> yeah. Before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you when we ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. But before we do that, I want you to maybe tell us a little bit of shout out. 
oh yeah, yeah. So I, I, oh, this makes me smile every time I talk about it. Like European movement, like the the referendums, but, but this in particular is is so heartwarming. Uh, shout out! It's a a small, mainly volunteer run. There's sort of one and a half staff members paid, um, organization that works to basically, um educate kids and adults about everything LGBTQ+. Um, and it involves us going out, doing workshops in schools, workplaces, youth groups, and just for an hour talking to kids in particular and sometimes adults uh, about firstly what it means, what all the letters in the in the LGBTQIA+, uh, anagram, it's an anagram, right? Um, acronym. <laughs> acronym, yeah. that's it. What, what mm-hmm. each of those letters mean uh, and the different definitions of those things and we get them to like kind of engage and, and, and have a voice about this and, and we try to empower them to be allies too and to say, mm-hmm. you know, we ask them like if a kid in your class came out as trans, what would you do or how could you support them or how would you feel? And again, it's like European movement, it's, it's facilitating conversation and, and letting them ask questions and and what really warms my heart is that the kids that I've met doing the workshops are just so they're so open-minded and they they know so much. Like they have Google, you know, so they mm. just go like we give them a term like bisexual and they go, they raise us one and say pansexual, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they know so much. So I'm really hopeful for um, what we try and do is reduce workplace and school place bullying uh, of LGBTQ people. That's our sort of, that's our main goal. Um, I'm on the exec of Shoutout and that's the main goal of, of what we do. And and I would be really hopeful that that kind of thing is on its way out. Um, I, it's still exists uh, mm. among adults, among kids, but but groups like Shout Out and Belong To and the others are really working to uh, to decrease that. So if anyone would like to volunteer, we're always looking for volunteers uh, in Shout Out. To, it's just such heartwarming work. You just go into a school and just talk to the kids about it. And um, it's obviously open to everybody, um, whatever their gender, whatever their sexuality. Um, and we love that, that we have a real mix as part of the exec, as part of the board, as part of our 60 plus volunteers. Um, and that's really important to kids, you know, that that they see that people from all walks of life are supportive of this. And this is just part of our society. So we've done, I think, over almost 1,400 workshops to date since it was founded in 2012 um, in mainly schools and then in lots of workplaces and stuff. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it's fabulous work. I I really, really enjoy it. And I think it's really worthwhile and valuable. And it's so important. I just know even from my own time in school in the 90s that gay was just used as a a coverall Mm -hmm. insult for for things being, being now too good at school, not good enough at school, being too bright, yeah. too too interested in sports, not interested enough in sports. It was this coverall. While we were the official party line in 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 the school was that there's nothing wrong with a person being gay. There was never a point that you know you had a responsibility as a citizen or as an as a friend to when if, if someone was going to come out to you to actually to, to listen and attend to think about ways that you can make them feel more welcome. Yeah. And language is so important, Derek, like as you know, on your yes. show and like mm-hmm. it, we, that's a big one. That one that you just mentioned, that is a big one that we always discuss because it's such an issue of saying, oh, that's gay. And this this thing of like they say, oh, no, but I don't mean I don't mean the sexuality. And so there's an innocence to it. But it's about telling kids and, and, and adults, too, that like what you're doing is you're 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 using gay as a negative word. And so therefore you are attaching negativity to the term. So even yeah. if you don't think about the sexuality when you say something is gay, it um it, it's negative. And so language is so important. And sometimes the kids get frustrated and they're like, oh, there's so many letters. Sure, it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. And, and that's great that they think it doesn't matter. But for lots of kids, 
it's so important to them to pick one of those letters and to claim them and to say, this is my identity. I am, you know, uh, non-binary. I am bisexual. I am lesbian. And that gives them validation. That gives them, you know, it helps them with finding out who they are, which is such an important part of growing up. And, you Mm. know, some people don't want labels. Some people don't want letters and that's totally fine. But for those that do, it's so important that we have that huge LGBTQIA plus that goes on and on. <laughs> yeah. I know some people find that some people who are I mean, on the less supportive side of things make fun, but it's so important to actually indicate, yes, that there is the plus is there for a reason. There are people who are who are, who are included in different ways. There's this we're still learning. It's not it's not yeah. It's not finished. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We've such a diverse world and I think that that's beautiful and that's wonderful. And I think like, why not keep increasing the letters? Why not open ourselves up to things, you know? Mm. And, and and I know what you mean. There's like this funny kind of frustration that people have sometimes and say, oh, we're all human. But it's, you have to remember that everyone has a different experience of that. And, yeah. and, and some people experience bullying and abuse and discrimination because of who they are. So it is so important that we constantly work at these things. Like, like we pass the marriage referendum, but like, how often do you see a same-sex couple holding hands around Dublin? Like, it's not as common. I remember right after the referendum, I saw every same-sex couple I felt were holding hands. And yeah. and I feel like it's still not, in such a progressive city as Dublin, it's still not um, happening. We heard that story a few months ago of a lesbian couple in London, such a diverse, open, mm-hmm. modern, contemporary city, and, and a lesbian couple being physically you know, assaulted on a tube. Like it's, there is still so much work to do. And um, that's why I think in Shout Out, we just continue to to get as many workshops as we can and to, and to meet people. And, you know, like if anyone works in a company where they think like maybe if someone's listening and they're gay or they're trans themselves or whatever, and they feel like in their workplace, they don't feel supported or they don't feel like welcome or, or that they don't feel that they can talk about who they are or who they're dating or whatever. And um, we also come and do workshops uh, in, in, in workplaces too. And they can be really beneficial because often when you start the conversation, like I've seen kids in classes go, oh, and kind of realize that I, I think they think sometimes that everyone's out to get them or that people aren't understanding. And then when you start the conversation, it's funny how you'll have like one kid defending everything who who's straight and cis themselves, but they're really passionate about these things, you know, and and that's really important that that people see that and that that conversation is opened. Mm-hmm. Mm. Definitely. And before we wrap up the your favorite word in Irish. Oh, um, my favourite is Lus on Chromkeen or Daffodil uh, because I think it's the most beautiful thing. I think it, I've never even looked this up properly, but I'm presuming it directly translates to I, uh, what I say is the plant of the little bent head. And I just think that is the most adorable thing. And, and I love flower names in Irish mm. because I don't take any interest in botany or horticulture <laughs> or whatever, but it's it's this real description like Doreen Day uh, for fuchsia. It's a real yeah. description of what the plant is. And you can almost see the person coming across this plant for the first time and saying, I'm going to call it that because it looks like that. So Lus <laughs> Uncrumkeen is my favourite yeah, word. Later on poetic at the same time. Absolutely. And, and beautiful, you know, and like, meh, daffodil. And then you have lust on Chromkeen, you know. <laughs> Lisa Nick and Frau, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Darren. So until the next time, it's a slant from me. Slan. Catch you then. Mm-hmm. 
This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Rich, thick oh, yeah. cream over it. <laughs> Is that you, Dara? Chocolate. You just sound like a big activist. I'm like, yeah, but that's my radio voice.